0: Reading Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. Hear now the word of the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And now we turn to the New Testament, to the passage we'll be working with in Galatians chapter 2, reading from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Galatians chapter 2, 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is our lifeline to you. We pray you will speak to us from your word today. May the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, who is our rock. Amen. Amen. Well, we're having a Reformation Banquet. This means that we are thinking about the reformation. The reformation began 505 years ago tomorrow. When a an obscure New Testament professor, I like to say that, having spent my life as a New Testament professor, an obscure and we are obscure, an obscure New Testament professor nailed a document at the door of a church offering to debate people over these statements called theses, the 95 theses. He had 95 things he wanted to debate with his contemporaries. And when he nailed that piece of paper on the door, he had no idea what he was launching because all of a sudden there was a firestorm set off by that innocent academic piece of paper. He thought he was simply going to debate. But these were statements that all of a sudden galvanized what people were thinking and the the, uh, convictions that people were growing in because they were reading their scriptures, uh, often for the first time because it hadn't been accessible to them before. Uh, And particularly you have this group of people like Luther who are studying the scripture in its original Uh, And because of that, they started seeing things in a new way. Now, Luther's theses were, to us, kind of obscure, uh, but they focused on repentance, the powers of the Pope, and particularly indulgences. We're going to talk about indulgences. I will explain them in a moment. But that was the focus of what he wanted to debate on. Now, indulgences focus on a distinction that people were making that grew to uh, Luther's day. It actually started out several centuries before, but they started making a distinction between forgiveness of guilt of sin and forgiveness or release from the punishment of sin. And they said that your guilt of sin can be forgiven but you still must be punished for that same sin that's forgiven. This is the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church today, and that was the teaching in Luther's day that he is challenging with his thesis because where is that punishment for sin paid for? Purgatory. It actually was a doctrine probably that arose together with the doctrine of purgatory. And so, when you have this distinction being made, all of a sudden you have various ways you have to get rid of this punishment, because you can be forgiven, but now you're going to be punished in purgatory. So how do you get rid of that in this life without having to pay for it? Well, there were various ways offered in the church, pilgrimages to holy sites, uh, praying, or a big part in paying for certain masses to be performed. Uh, Often there would be a mass performed by a priest by himself that you're paying for. And then giving alms, giving giving gifts to the poor. But particularly in uh, Luther's day, there was a certain kind of payment that was most important to the uh, Roman pope, and that was contributing to the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome. If you've been to Rome, you've seen this church. Well, it was being built at this time. And so you have this doctrine being built up and people being taught about punishment for sin awaits them. uh, And they have to do certain things themselves to deal with that. Now, Luther knew this personally because he was actually uh, called to be a priest, a Roman priest, in a monastery. So he would actually perform priestly duties to other monks. He was a monk himself. And he, he tells us what the form is, what the statement is that the priest would give when he hears confession. Here's what he, he says. This is citing Luther now. He tells us this. He says, this is what you would hear in the monastery when someone asks for forgiveness. God forgive you, brother, the merit of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and of the blessed Saint Mary, always the Virgin, and of all the saints, the merit of your order, the strictness of your religion, the humility of your profession, the contrition of your heart, the good works you have done and will do for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ be available to you for the remission of your sins. the increase of your worth and grace and the reward of everlasting life. Amen. That is what the priest would pronounce on people. And so this this priestly formula of absolution makes clear that there's one good thing that says, may the merit of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ Earn you the remission of your sins and life everlasting. But it doesn't stop there. And that's the rub. It should have just stopped there. But instead it adds the merit of Mary, the merit of all the saints. So what's tomorrow? Halloween. All Hallows Eve. Hallows simply means saints. It's All Saints Day. May all the saints and all of their merit be made available to you. That's what this Uh, Absolution says, as well as your good works, ones you've done and ones you will do. That's That's the teaching of the church, official, that Luther's is rejecting on these 95 theses. Because one other way to receive this forgiveness of punishment for sin is a papal indulgence. Papal simply means it comes from the Pope. Pope of Rome, the Bishop of the Church of Rome. And so this papal indulgence is defined today by the Roman Church as this. This is the catechism in the Catholic Church. Quote, a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. Now that's, that's what they teach today. That's their catechism. That's teaching today, that's teaching in Luther's day. In Luther's day, this became a big deal, particularly as the Pope sent out uh, uh, religious men who were charged with raising money to build this church in Rome. And it started becoming, really, uh, people were obsessed by this and paying hordes of money for the building of this church, imagining that they would be forgiven. And I'm not, this is not obscure, brothers and sisters. This is not something only 500 years ago. All you have to do is get on the internet today and search papal indulgence. Now, there are several actually this year that the Pope has announced. But here's one that is my favorite, being an old geezer, a self-proclaimed old geezer. And here I'm quoting. This is from the Apostolic Penitentiary. This is the Department of the Pope, Pope's uh, bureaucracy. The Second World Grandparents' Day presents a new incentive. All those who participate in their diocese events will receive a plenary indulgence as long as they meet the remaining conditions, confession, communion, and prayer for the intentions of the Pope. The decree of the apostolic penitentiary states that those who cannot participate due to illness can still unite in spirit and earn the same indulgence. It can also be earned by those who spend their time caring for or visiting an elderly person in need, even though through a video call. So all you have to do is call me on video and the Pope, You know, meet those other conditions, the Pope guarantees that you will receive to that date, that's the catch, to that date, forgiveness of all the sins and his punishment in purgatory to that point. But any more sin, you're going to build up more punishment. Well, Luther's theses were relatively mild in this situation. But here's a couple which were explosive. Thesis 36. This is what Luther says. Any Christian whatsoever who's truly repentant enjoys plenary remission from penalty and guilt, and this is given him without letters of indulgence. Oh my, oh my, oh my. He has just undermined what the Pope says. Exactly. You receive full forgiveness. Plenary just means entire. Full forgiveness from penalty and guilt, both. You don't need these indulgences. 32, all those who believe themselves certain of their own salvation by means of letters of indulgence will be eternally damned together with their teachers. Oh my, oh my, oh my. If you think these letters of indulgence are going to bring you salvation, eternal salvation, you will be eternally damned, is what Luther says. I'm just quoting Luther here. So this is what he said 505 years ago that set the world on fire, the Christian world. Because Luther was a Bible scholar. This is is clear when you study him. He was was studying the scriptures very carefully to teach them. And he started seeing that the Bible doesn't teach what he had thought uh, was the Bible's religion all of his life. And instead, the Bible teaches that we are justified by faith alone. Now, you just confess that in the Westminster Standards, in the, in the Shorter Catechism. What is justification? And this is a question and answer which is well worth your memorizing, because it is a sterling answer. Justification is an act of God's free grace, whereby he forgives us all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, holy because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And this is, what, this is why the doctrine of justification was at the center of the Reformation, because it involves the forgiveness of sins. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace whereby he pardons all of our sins and its punishments. There's now th- therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what that's what Luther is reading, and he started seeing the Bible teaching free and full forgiveness by grace through faith. And brothers and sisters, we are here today, beneficiaries of the sacrifice of that German monk 505 years ago. That's why we're having this fun, potluck today. And that's why you're hearing me now moving to the text of scripture that he cites repeatedly, Galatians 2, 19-21, which is at the very heart of this whole controversy. This This is unfolding the heart of it. It doesn't say everything because, by the way, there are too many texts of scripture that clearly teach what Luther was teaching on this point. We could just go all sorts of places and see a lot of clear places. So let me do this now. Just focus on this text. Here in Galatians chapter two, verses 19 through 21. I have two things to say in preparation for that. First of all, in some Bibles, the end of verse 19 I beg pardon, the first line in verse 20 is actually in verse 19, okay? So when it says, I've been crucified with Christ, that's actually verse 19, the end of verse 19 in some places. So don't be, don't be alarmed, okay? The verse numbers are modern. That's all modern stuff. 1551, that's when that was embedded, okay? So it not, has nothing to do with the original Bible which is helpful. But secondly, um, if you're reading the ESV, it depends on which one you're reading in verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness, and some versions of the ESV, the same translation say, if justification. So they change their minds, and they change the translation a little bit. And the word there can mean justification or righteousness. So they just have a difference of opinion there. So don't be alarmed, Uh, we'll we'll talk about that in the end. So the context. The context is Paul has opposed Peter in chapter two, verse 11 of Galatians, and he has publicly reproved him because Peter was not eating with Gentiles. When he went to uh, a, a Gentile place, in Antioch, Syria, and he's acting in such a way that by implication, he's saying by implication now, by not eating with Gentiles, he's saying by implication, the Gentiles are not justified because they're not yet Jewish. They're not keeping the Jewish laws. They're not obeying the law personally. And because of that, they're not pure. That's what Peter is saying through his actions, and it's a necessary implication. And so that's what Paul objects to. He said, it's not just that he's saying this problematic thing. He's cutting at the heart of the gospel. What he's doing, he's acting in such a way that it's betraying the gospel. And so Paul stands up and reproves him. Now, one of the interesting things about this text, you're not really sure where Paul ends what he's saying to Peter and what he starts saying to us. I don't think it matters. He's saying all this to us anyway. But this kind of goes on and on. And verses 19 to 21 are part of the same issue. How is it that we're justified? How is it that we belong to Christ and are purified and receive forgiveness of all of our sins? How does that happen? Well, here's how he says it happens in verse uh, 19, He says, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law. And that's the first answer to how it is that you no longer are obligated personally to fulfill the law for eternal life. Remember what we read in Leviticus. The one who does these things, obeys the law, will live by it. Here now, Paul says, through the law, I died to the law. Notice what he says is through the law. How can that be? Through the law, I died to the law. Now, one modern author says that what Paul's talking about is his sinful goals and proud, self-exalting desires came to a decisive end his sinful goals and proud, self-exalting desires. But that's just one author commenting on this. The problem with that is it makes it sound like the solution to Paul's pride and self-exalting desires is humility. Paul should just be more humble. Paul says the solution is death. The way that I can escape the law is to die. It's not a lack of humility. I have to die. That's how I can escape the law. And that's because the law says that you are personally obligated. You are personally obligated to fulfill its terms. The law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. This is later in Galatians 3.12, quoting from Leviticus 18. But how is it that our death is through the law? Well, it's because Christ was born under the law. Galatians 4, verse 4. Christ was born under the law, and the law brings liability. You know a liability is. You are now obligated, and if you don't meet the obligations, you're liable to punishment. And in fact, you're liable to a curse. Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of law, and do them. Galatians 3.10. You are liable to a curse because the implication is which is clearly taught in scripture you have sinned and if you have committed one sin you are liable to the whole law James 2:10 for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it so if you don't keep the law perfectly you are under a curse But here's the solution. Here's how it is that you died through the law. Our Lord was born under the law so that he would lawfully free us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ became a curse. He took upon himself our curse on the cross. This is what happens on the cross. So, brothers and sisters, it's not that our sinful desires have to be put to death. We have to be put to death. We have to die. We have to fall under a curse of the law for the law to be satisfied. And that's what Christ Jesus did. That's the gospel for you today. is that Christ Jesus died in your place so that you died. That's what Paul says in our text, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. That's where you died. It's, it's in your translation, verse, verse 20. For I have been crucified with Christ. The, the statement there is can be rendered co-crucified. And it's like a co-signer on a loan. You both do it. It's two, It's a twin signing. And there's a twin crucifixion. Christ and you. When he was crucified, you were crucified. That's how he freed you from the demands of the law and its curse. He put you to death on the cross. Because cursed is everyone hung on a tree. When it fell on him, it fell on you. But that's not the end of the story. Now verse 12, 20, I follow. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the cross. So you no longer live, as it were, before God. Now Christ lives before God and you in Him. Your righteousness is Christ's righteousness because His resurrection is your resurrection when you trust in Him. See, brothers and sisters, this is is not some sort of mysticism that I no longer live and I, you know, my being is absorbed in God. I mean, this has been around. People have said this even in Christian circles, and it's just, it is just false. And here's why. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the Son of God who lived a genuine human life. He loved me and gave himself for me. Those things belong together. He lovingly gave himself for me. Not that his love is over with. He loved me past. Not that he loved me and he doesn't anymore. It's, it's focusing on the cross. It's on the cross where his love is manifested. On the cross, he loved me in a supreme way. Greater love has no man than he gives his life for his friends, what our Lord Jesus says. And there it was on the cross. He loved you and gave himself for you. But he has independent existence. You live in him because you're united with him by faith. And that's what the gospel is. That's why our salvation is by grace through faith. And brothers and sisters, this is the core of the gospel. This is actually, uh, if if you simply learn these two words together and think about them when you're reading the New Testament, you will see that this is the summary of the gospel, substitutionary mediation. I I add the word substitutionary there because our mediator substituted for us. He took our place. That's what substitute means. Mediator can mean somebody who negotiates on our behalf, and it doesn't mean that. Substitutionary mediator means someone who intervened and said, no, I'll... I will take the punishment. Put the curse on me, Father, not on my people. Let my sheep go. I will take the curse upon myself that they may be freed. And the Father was pleased with that. He appointed his son to be the great shepherd of the sheep, to die on our behalf. And then he raised him up on the third day through the power of the Holy Spirit so that he might be that risen great shepherd of the sheep even today, so that we might live in him. Because when he was raised, we are raised. This is substitutionary mediation. It's not just that he died for us. He was raised for us. When he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. And you go to Ephesians 2. When he was seated in the high heavenlies on his father's throne, We were seated in the high heavenlies on his Father's throne. I don't know if you noticed, but that Colossians 3 passage actually says that. It's almost like I meant you to hear that. I snuck it in. So you would see the stuff all swirling around that's in this text. You see, Paul is saying, I've been crucified with Christ. He was crucified, but he he was crucified as my mediator, So I don't live anymore where I'm exposed to a curse. There's no more punishment for sin for me. Why? I'm dead. You don't punish somebody for a crime after they died. They're dead. This is why he says, I've been co-crucified with Christ. Christ freed us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. This is the act of a surety. A surety is somebody who takes upon himself the obligation of a debt, and, he's, and the debt falls on him. And In the ancient world, you have somebody take out a loan, he has a surety, invariably, a guarantor. You take out a loan, you're the borrower, and you go to the bank, and you say, I want to borrow this amount of money. The bank says, who's going to be your guarantor? Who's going to be your surety? And you name somebody, and that surety swears. He swears an oath, I will pay if my friend defaults. And that's what happens. If if the borrower defaults on the loan, the bank goes immediately to the surety. He's got to pay. He, He has to pay the debt. Here now, the Westminster Larger Catechism 71 How is justification an act of God's free grace? Although Christ, by his obedience and death, death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, yet inasmuch as God accepts the satisfaction from a surety which he might have demanded of them, did provide the surety, his own only son, imputing his righteousness to them and requiring nothing of them for their justification but faith, which also is his gift. Their justification is is to them of free grace. So here's what God has given you in Christ Jesus when you trust in him. He's given you freedom from the curse and punishment of all of your sins. He has given you eternal life in his son because you're clothed in his righteousness when you believe in him and he's given you the faith to believe in him. That's why it's a free grace. Now this is the gospel because as Paul states elsewhere in 2 Corinthians, for for our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how do we acquire Christ's righteousness? Indulgences, payment. Are we going to stand there and watch you give your offering to the Lord in the box at the back of the room? No. Because none of your gifts, none of your offerings to the Lord can satisfied. What can you offer to the Lord that he doesn't already have? Do you think he wants that? You could give him a whole cow. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your cow. The Lord doesn't need your gifts. You need his gift. And by abandoning yourself and throwing yourself on God's mercy, he guarantees that you will have a savior, a mediator, who will pay all your debts, the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to see this in the Gospels? You want to see this in the teaching of Christ? Luke 18, this story that Jesus tells of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Interesting what he says about the Pharisee. He says, the Pharisees like those people quote, quoting Jesus, Luke 18, 9, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. You trust in your own righteousness, your own good works, your own uprightness. Whereas the tax collector, you'll recall, this is the one who beat his chest and he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he did. He bowed his head and he says, I'm not even worthy to look at you, but have mercy on me, a sinner. And here's what Jesus says of him. He went down to his house justified. That's a quote. He went down to his house justified. Brothers and sisters, the scripture teaches clearly that it's by faith alone that you live. Now you go to Galatians 3.21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, my personal obedience, then Christ died for no purpose. I live by faith in the Son of God, verse 20. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You trust not in yourself, otherwise Christ died for no purpose. There's no reason for him to die for you if your righteousness is satisfactory. It could be today that you've not yet trusted in the Lord. It could be today that this is all seems like an old guy talking about a bunch of old dead guys. Brothers and sisters, this is the eternal life today, as it was 500 years ago. The one thing I've learned in my long life is that sometimes old things are interesting and valuable, and still and still relevant. There are certain basic things in the world that are still the same today as back then. Yeah, there's new things we enjoy, but there are old things we should enjoy. We sang some old hymns. Some of these, the truths of those old hymns, brothers and sisters, they have not changed. So how is it that you make this, free and full salvation yours, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, throwing yourself on his mercy, looking to the Lord and saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner in Christ Jesus. And that's it. That is the answer. It is by faith alone. We're not gonna sell you an indulgence. We're not gonna sell you anything This is a free and full salvation in Christ Jesus. And it's a word from the Lord to you today, if you need to act on this. And if, brothers and sisters, you've lived your life knowing the Lord, be encouraged. This old stuff is still relevant today. It's true, the scripture teaches it clearly. This is the substitute, this is your righteousness, this is your life, this is your hope, and that's why we're here today. We are here today because of the vibrancy of these truths opened up for us over 500 years ago. We are still excited about these things today. It's still our hope and our life, because you start reading the scripture and it just starts opening up with paradise and glory and joy in the Lord. And Martin Luther was God's gift to us to that end. Praise the Lord. Well, here's what Martin Luther says on Galatians 3.20. Here, here's Luther in his commentary in Galatians. Paul explains what constitutes true Christian righteousness. True Christian righteousness is the righteousness of Christ who lives in us. We must look away from our own person. Christ and my conscience must become one so that I can see nothing else but Christ crucified and raised from the dead for me. If I, keep in, if I keep looking at myself, I am gone. If I lose sight of Christ and begin to consider our past, we simply go to pieces. We must turn our eyes to the brazen serpent, Christ crucified, and believe with all our heart that he is our righteousness and our life. For Christ, on whom our eyes are fixed, in whom we live, who lives in us, is Lord over law, sin, death, and all evil. Amen. Let us pray. The vibrancy of the gospel, O Lord, will never lose its sheen for us. Its glory, its hope, we many of us have come out of the mire of sin not knowing you living in darkness as your enemies but god rich in mercy full of compassion you have reached down into our hearts and given us faith in christ jesus that we might appeal to you for a good conscience and find in you a gentle victorious heroic beautiful savior the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we thank you. We give you thanks, O Lord, for working in church history for men like Martin Luther and many others who who risked their lives to bring this gospel to the people of God that we might be free from all the shackles of man-made religion and live before you in hope and delight and in the confidence that comes in Christ Jesus. We thank you. We pray you would guard us to that end all the days of our life. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.